Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Then you see cars on the roads who were burned, you know, the cars were burned and they didn't have time to put it away. Then you see uh, military equipment like tanks totally destroyed on the side of the road. So you really feel like this is a war zone. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard Slovakian Prime Minister Edward Hager talking about his recent visit to Ukraine with top EU officials. Later in the podcast, you'll hear more from that interview with Politico's Lily Bayer, in which Hager describes his meeting with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and a harrowing visit to the town of Bucha. It's a chance to hear what it's like for an EU leader to be confronted close up with the reality of Russia's war in Ukraine. In just a moment, we'll discuss Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer's surprising decision to pay a visit to Vladimir Putin, which doesn't seem to have gone very well. I generally have no optimistic impression that I can report to you from this conversation with President Putin. The offensive is evidently being prepared on a massive scale. And we'll have the latest from the French presidential election as Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen campaign to clinch victory after qualifying from the first round. Rien n'est joué. Et le débat que nous aurons dans les 15 jours à venir est décisif pour notre pays et pour l'Europe. Je restaurerai dans tous les domaines la souveraineté de la France, c'est-à-dire pour les Français, la liberté de décider pour eux-mêmes et de défendre leurs intérêts. And later in the podcast, how hard will it be for the EU to get rid of its Russian energy addiction? We'll be speaking with Henning Gleustein, Energy Director at Eurasia Group. But first, let's check in with our podcast panel. Maya de la Baum in Paris and Matthew Karnichnik in Austria. Hi, Maya. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Matt. Grüß Gott. Grüß Gott, Herr Kollege. Okay, let's start uh, with the French presidential election aftermath or the aftermath of, of round one in any case. We brought you a special edition of the podcast on election night, which is still available for you to listen to if you'd like to listen back. Gives a great flavour of the, the mood in the different camps and the strategies that may lie ahead for the two qualifiers, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. Maya since then, since election night, how have things developed? What can we say about the strategies that the two of them are pursuing? What's Macron trying to do to clinch it in this second round, which will take place a week on Sunday? Um, and, and how is uh, Marine Le Pen trying to stage an upset? Yeah, I think for Emmanuel Macron, uh, the campaign is really getting real now. Uh, like, you know, for, for so many weeks uh, and because of, of the war in Ukraine, he was just acting very presidential and being the president. But now he's really the campaigner. 
Emmanuel Macron's campaign strategy is clear to see. Criticised for not being present enough in the first round campaign, he wants to shake hands with as many people as possible and convince them to vote for him in the second round. And so he basically now is uh, every day visiting a, you know, a city, go, being really on the campaign trail, uh, confronting uh, you know, himself with with uh, real citizens, right? Which is sometimes a bit bumpy, right? It sounds it sounds like sometimes that's that's not going super well when he when he has to sort of deal with real people. Yeah, one guy yesterday he was in Eastern France, and one person told him that he thought he was the worst or the lamest president ever, which I thought was quite harsh. <laughs> Well, bit of a reality check. Okay, so you've got Emmanuel Macron trying to be more like a candidate and Marine Le Pen, I guess, trying to be more presidential. Uh, Maya, you were watching a press conference of hers today. We're recording on Wednesday evening. Uh, What was she focusing on there? Yes, um, today she she gave a press conference on on foreign policy, which is quite unusual because I don't think this is an issue that Marine Le Pen has been particularly uh, good or prepared for because she's never uh, she's been focused on domestic politics more than on foreign policy. Je pense simplement au retour à un monde multipolaire, ou plus précisément à un concert des nations. And today was kind of a different Marine Le Pen talking about, you know, um, geopolitics and international relations in the world and trying to uh, tell people what her priorities would be in Lebanon, in Africa. So it was something that we hadn't heard, uh, you know, back in 2017. And what about Russia in particular? Because, of course, uh, she has in the past uh, been happy to associate herself with Vladimir Putin. And she's obviously been trying to distance herself from him and from Moscow in recent weeks. Uh, Was she pressed on that? And does she have a a convincing answer now in terms of how she would deal with Russia? Yes, she's clearly trying to play down uh, her you know, her stance on Russia. In her press conference today, she said that she was pretty much in line with Emmanuel Macron on, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine, on how France was acting now. She said that... um, you know, before she thought that the the, Rus- the relationship between Russia and Europe had to be revived, as Macron, uh, you know, was also uh, was also keen to do years ago, and now she said that with the war in Ukraine, things have changed, and so she she's never very sort of explicit on you know what she thinks of Putin. She never really describes him. She never said he, she thought he was a dictator or she's never very harsh when she talks about Vladimir Putin. But she clearly said that, you know, uh, what is happening now in Ukraine is something she condemned. And she even uh, uh, spoke of, of Bucha, of the killings in Bucha as war crimes. She said that there was a need for an investigation from the UN. So she's been yeah, she's tried to sort of, you know, brush off concerns that she was a pro-Putin candidate. Mm. So, my, what do you think it comes down to now? What What are the key moments, or or what what kind of issues are really going to decide who comes out on top? I think the polls still have a lead for Emmanuel Macron. He's the favourite for a second term, but the gap is not huge, so it is still 
all to play for? What, what do you think are going to be the deciding factors here? I think the key moment will be the debate, the TV debate on April 20th, when, you know, Macron and Le Pen will really confront each other on issues, on ideas. And it will be a very interesting moment, I think, <laughs> a key moment, as we said. But I also think that Macron so far has benefited from a lot of support from, from people who are influential in France. Uh, I think of Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, the former French president yesterday, who clearly said that he would support Emmanuel Macron. So this is all good for, for Macron, for his you know, campaign and for the sort of impression that the, the, the entire country needs to rally around him because, you know, we have to stop uh, uh, the, the far right from, from winning this election. OK, well, uh, Maya, we'll let you go. We know you've uh, still got to watch Emmanuel Macron on TV tonight, uh, but we'll, we'll catch up with you again on the presidential election soon. Thanks for now, Maya. Thanks. Great. Bye bye. Uh, Matt, uh, let's talk about a couple of other uh, things. Let's start in, in Germany. One of them, we've heard that the Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is resisting pressure for the moment anyway from some of his coalition partners, particularly the Greens, to deliver German tanks to Ukraine. And in a possibly not entirely unrelated development, we heard that the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky basically rejected the idea of a visit by the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier. What do you make of, of all that? And do you think there's a danger that Germany is kind of falling behind the, the public opinion curve, if you like, again, having initially made this uh, great leap forward, if you like, as, or as it would be widely seen, uh, to use journalistic parlance in terms of deciding to send weapons to Ukraine, deciding to boost its own defences. How much trouble do you think the German political establishment is in here now? Well, I think, you know, just to start, it was embraced. There was a lot of enthusiasm about it from Western liberals in particular. But I think those of us who who know Germany well, especially in Eastern Europe, said from the beginning, well, you know, we want to we want to see what they actually do here. We want to see them put some actual meat on the bone. And so far, they have they have failed to do so. At the very beginning of this, they were still resisting sending any weapons. People remember that the German defense minister offered to send helmets initially and wanted, you know, to sort of be congratulated and praised uh, for that bold step. And since then, they've agreed to send other things. But the reality is that they haven't sent anywhere near as much as what either the U.S. or the U.K. is sending. And I think what Zelensky was saying here is, look, we don't want this Russland Versteher, Steinmeier, this Russian apologist to come here for a photo op when Germany has not been willing to really send us something that we can use to protect ourselves against the Russians. And I think the Germans have got the message now. But they do say they're the number one donor, right? They're the number one financial donor to Ukraine, they say, possibly alongside the U.S. Well, there's a lot of sort of fudging with the numbers there. I mean, if you talk to the Ukrainians, they, they tell you another story. But the, the point is, is that Germany, as Europe's largest country, largest economy, has not stepped up here. They are just tangled up in their own soul-searching as ever about whether to send weapons, what weapons to send, and, you know, when they can actually send them. And I think there's just a huge amount of frustration, not only in Ukraine, but also within the NATO alliance about uh, Germany's handling of this crisis. 
Let's switch to the country you're in right now, Austria. Uh, quite extraordinary visit, really, by the Austrian Chancellor, uh, Nehammer, um, who decided to go and see Vladimir Putin. Now, this is someone who's only been the Chancellor of Austria for a couple of months, has no kind of prior relationship with Putin. And we've seen, of course, that even if you do have a prior relationship with Vladimir Putin, it doesn't seem to count for very much. We begin in Moscow, where Austria's Chancellor Karl Niehammer met earlier today with Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a statement, Niehammer called the meeting, quote, not a friendly visit. Yet by doing this, by taking the step, he became the first Western leader to to visit Putin since the beginning of the war, uh, you know, risking giving him uh, legitimacy and undermining the idea that Russia is being isolated. What on earth was he thinking? I think he has just shown a complete lack of tact or understanding of the dynamic here, especially at a time when the European Union, the European Commission has been trying to show that Europe is together on this issue, that there is a common position on Russia. Nobody was going to Moscow from the commission or indeed from any other member states. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you have Karl Nehammer who, as you say, has only been chancellor for a couple of months. He didn't become chancellor as a result of an election, by the way. A couple of years ago, this guy was a an officer in Austria's army, which, you know, as many listeners will know, is more like a armed fire brigade than an actual army. So I think he clearly thinks that he has some strategic expertise here. But, I mean, it, he's just made the country, unfortunately, a complete laughing stock, and you know, I think was trying ultimately to d- distract voters at home from what is actually going on in Austria. There's a little scandal here involving his bodyguards and his wife, and some drunk driving that occurred on the part of the bodyguards after they were drinking with his wife. And so, you know, I mean, I think this is a, a classic case of um, trying to distract people from domestic problems. Okay, so what what's his what's his argument? What what were what was his reasoning for for taking this step which as you say was completely out of line in terms of what everybody else in the EU has been doing when it comes to Putin. So essentially what he is saying is that after being in Ukraine where he visited President Zelensky and visited Bucha and saw the atrocities there, he felt the urge to travel to Moscow to meet with Putin, look him in the eye and tell him what he saw and what he thinks about it. And he's arguing and the Austrian government is now arguing as well that it's important for Putin to hear this directly from people and not just over the telephone, as he has heard repeatedly from Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, and and others, I think there was also some vague hope going in that they might succeed in convincing uh, Putin to agree to some sort of humanitarian corridor to get people out of some of the the the, the, the cities that are now under siege. That, of course, didn't happen either. So th- there's just not a lot to show for for this uh, for this meeting, except that 
this new chancellor of Austria uh, got his 15 minutes of, of international fame. 15 minutes of fame or infamy, depending on your point of view. There you go. Okay, Matt, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up, our reporter Lily Beyer talks to Slovakian Prime Minister Edward Heger about his visit to Ukraine. And we talk energy with Henning Gleustein of the Eurasia Group. That's coming up. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Now let's bring in our reporter Lily Beyer, who's been speaking with the Slovakian Prime Minister Edward Hager. Uh, Lily, Edward Hager was in uh, Ukraine in recent days. Just tell us a bit about the circumstances of that visit. So Slovakia's Prime Minister travelled to Kiev together with Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, Joseph Borrell. They were escorted by Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmihal to Bucha, the site of the grave atrocities outside of Kiev. Okay, and let's just hear uh, Eduard Heger tell us in his own words about that journey into Kiev and then on to Bucha. We were approaching Kiev in the train was probably two hours before we arrived. Well, we heard the message that uh, Kramatorsk was bombed, the, the train station. More than 30 people have been killed and over 100 more wounded after Russian rockets hit a train station in the city of Kramatorsk. And then we arrived, we were arriving slowly to the train station in Kiev. And you see these people on the train station, you know, like regular people, you know, citizens of Kiev, standing there in their jacket, just waiting for a commuting train, etc. And then you think about this, how the, how the rocket came in Kramatorsk into the train station and smashed the people in, totally in, in pieces. And then you look like these people are totally, they don't have anything to, to protect themselves. Because we were having masks, we were having helmets, etc. But these people, they don't have any of that. And they just have to go to work, they have to go to see their family or so. And, and they just have to live with the feeling that you don't know where and when the bomb can hit you. So this was the initial feeling that you come to Kiev, which was totally very strong. And then uh, as we came to uh, to Kiev, they we got in the cars and we drove to Bucha, which is like one hour drive from Kiev train station. 
and you go through different parts of Kiev and you see how the houses, the building houses, uh, apartment buildings, they are burned, they're shattered, they're bombed. Then you see like grocery stores totally damaged, warehouses. So a lot of civilian housing and civilian buildings, infrastructure, totally demolished. And you think like, why would the soldiers do that? Only out of pleasure, because why would you actually hit? Why would you shoot at this kind of building? And then we came to Bucha. And and uh, we came on the street where we saw the pictures, how they shot these people. And, and uh, Prime Minister Dan Schmiel was showing us a picture of one family that was first shot, father, mother, and kids. Then they put them on one, once like on each other and burned them. And we saw the, the burned bodies of, of that. So totally terrible. And then uh, we saw the mass grave and you, you saw those pictures. So, so, so deep, so intensive so saddening and and then we they came brought us also to the street where they stopped uh, the long convoy of the russian equipment where you saw the bravery of the ukrainian soldiers everything in in a couple hours so so the reality of how it's important to keep peace in the society how it's not how we cannot take it for granted because this can happen in any time we don't know when and where Higur also met with ukraine's president vladimir zelensky in kiev I met him several times before, but here you can see a person who is, we can see that, I mean, they haven't seen, like Denis Mihal haven't seen his family since, since the beginning of the of the war. They don't travel, they are staying just there in the uh, in, in Kiev. So they're only working. And, and you see that these people are, I would say, transformed by this experience. And, and you see how they matured. They, they have, I would say, the wisdom of, of the elders and, uh, and Zelensky as well. And uh, he's very realistic, and he understands that this is going to be very difficult to to get out of it. But uh, they 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 say, well, this is our land, these are our people. We have to fight for them, and they fight for us. He said that they need, first of all, they need to kind of win and secure their their land. They, uh, for example, the harbors that they have on the eastern part of uh, Ukraine, they are blocked by Russian ship and uh, submarines. And they say we need to free it because we need to export uh, our weed, etc., into the world, and and that's why we need weapons for that. And he says, well, I would love to have a peaceful uh, discussion on on the future of Ukraine. Uh, so you could see that he doesn't want to uh, war. He doesn't want war. He has to be in war because Putin pulled him into this war. So so he's really a person of of uh, of peace and freedom and and democracy. And so they need the military help. They also need humanitarian help because Denis Mihal told me that within a month or so, there's high risk that they will run out of uh, groceries uh, and, and food and they could be starving. So we really need to help them on uh, importing a lot of food. And Lily also spoke to the Slovakian Prime Minister about Ukraine's bid for EU membership. That's something that Slovakia has taken a close interest in. Uh, as we know, uh, Ukraine has asked for a special kind of fast-track procedure to be brought into the European Union. The EU, in some ways, has moved relatively quickly on this matter compared to how it's dealt with some other countries in that it has asked the European Commission to make an assessment of uh, Ukraine's readiness for membership. Uh, I believe the Commission has also provided a questionnaire to uh, the Ukrainian government. So some wheels are in motion there. But what's uh, Slovakia's role here? 
This is something that the Slovak government is taking very seriously. They actually put forward a proposal at a recent summit of EU leaders uh, calling for the EU to help Ukraine with reconstruction, recovery, and the path toward membership. So as a neighboring country, Slovakia is trying to take on a bigger role in helping out Kiev. They are so, so ready. They are so motivated to really do anything to really meet all, all, all necessary steps. I explained them uh, the, the program that we prepared and that I showed in Versailles. That we, after, they, after the European Commission gives the opinion, after they review the, the answers of the questionnaire, and this could be already on the summit in 30th and 31st in, in Brussels, then they will need to uh, will help with uh, doing all these uh, reforms and meeting all the criteria for the chapters. And we said we immediately are ready to help you and we will uh, invite other countries to help us with it, because that was our case of Slovakia. 1999, Slovakia missed the train. We joined in 2001 and we had to catch up within those three years. That's what the, the other ones were doing for, for two more. And we did it. And I said, please, let's trust Ukrainian people. They are motivated, they are committed, they will do anything so they can become members of you. Let's help them just like you helped us. And we also heard from Edward Hager on the question of whether the EU is moving fast enough and doing enough, in his opinion, to help Ukraine. I think European Union is really uh, moving fast, considering that we're speaking about 27 governments, 27 parliaments. And I gladly say, and I say it often, that before the pandemic, some difficult decision took years to happen. During the pandemic, it was months and weeks, but now during this uh, war at, uh, in Ukraine, it takes hours or days. That shows you how over a very short time, the European Union was able to really uh, make itself very fast. Of course, there's always greater potential and, and we should work to, toward the great potential. The most important thing is that we, we cannot stop, we cannot stagnate. We always have to help Ukraine till they win, till they uh, achieve their victory, and uh, because they are part of Europe. So it's not the question whether we do enough, it's the question whether we will continue and whether we will do more, and I think we should both. That was the Slovakian Prime Minister Edward Hager talking to our reporter Lily Bayer. Lily, thanks so much for bringing us that conversation. Thank you. Coming up. Could energy rationing be coming to Europe this winter if the EU doesn't play its cards right as it tries to move away from Russian oil and gas? We'll hear from Henning Gleustein, Energy Director at Eurasia Group, and our conversation with him is coming next. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how Europe can cut its dependency on Russian oil and gas as part of its response to the war in Ukraine, and about what that could mean for the EU and for Russia. The EU has announced plans to ban Russian coal imports, and it's aiming to get rid of its dependency on Russian energy completely well before 2030. To get some expert analysis, we spoke to Henning Gleustein, Director for Energy, Climate and Resources at Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. Henning started out as a journalist. So I, I actually got into energy sort of by accident. Um, I was working as a box standard reporter and photographer in South America, mostly in Colombia. 
and started selling some news about the energy and raw material industry there, coal exports and the likes, um, and sold that uh, to European newspapers. He's now based in the UK, but previously worked in Singapore, where he got so into his specialist subject that he even hosted oil tasting evenings. So I, I got my fingers on a, on a few little vials of uh, different crude oils and invited some oil traders over to my place to taste a little bit of it. And uh, you just taste it, don't swallow that stuff. It's, uh, it's really not very healthy and it actually tastes terrible as well. But it's, it's a fascinating little exercise. I started by asking Henning how easy it will be for Europe to reduce its dependency on Russian energy and even get it down to zero. The, the main message is it's doable, uh, but it's not easy. And the problem will be what happens this winter and next year, because you can't uh, drive it all down to zero that fast. And so the EU has already started with um, uh, with coal. So they embargoed um, Russian coal imports because that's seen as most feasible. There are other supplies, uh, Colombia and South America, where I used to live, uh, North America, uh, South Africa. They all have more coal that you can send uh, to Europe. Um, it's, it's just going to make it really expensive. Um, but it's feasible because the EU, see, you, you can actually sell this as part of the climate change um, and green transition because uh, the EU politician will at least say and maybe try to, to uh, that they will try to replace some of that Russian oil, not with alternative coal, not with alternative coal, but with, with renewable solutions. Um, so it's, it's a fairly popular move. Oil is um, more difficult already, but it's actually already de facto happening. Most, uh, very few European oil refiners are actually buying Russian oil at this stage. Now, the, the big one is natural gas. Uh, Europe gets um, about 40% of its natural gas imports from Russia. Most of that comes via pipeline. So you can't just switch that away, or turn around the pipeline and get it from someone else. Um, I mean, you can buy more shipped LNG imports, liquefied natural gas, but that, that makes it really expensive and um, is, is a bit of an issue. And the Russian gas is actually needed mostly during winter um, for heating. And that is a real problem for European politicians um, because uh, if, if that gas stops flowing now because of sanctions or because uh, President Putin of Russia stops selling it to Europe as punishment, um, then that will mean that uh, in winter we'll have to energy ration. Um, and uh, that might mean that some people can't heat their homes in winter. And sadly, when that happens, people freeze in Europe. Um, and that's a really hard political sell. Um, and that's why there's a big reluctance to it. Uh, there's also a bit of a fear in Europe that um, doing that, uh, cutting off all the gas from Russia would uh, escalate the situation in Ukraine, not de-escalate it, so that Putin might lash out in response rather than back off. Um, and this is why it's so difficult. But over the next five years, it'll be possible. But uh, this just highlights the issue. It's, it's really a problem that we have to solve the, problem, um, uh, the gas supply situation of next winter and, and 2023. After that, it becomes feasible. Uh, let me ask you about another uh, sort of practical aspect. We've heard a lot recently about the importance of having storage sites filled, particularly with, with gas. There obviously has been the allegation, certainly from European politicians, that Russia deliberately kept uh, gas storage sites, for example, in Germany at a low level, uh, which meant then uh, that Europe, in a, in a sense, really couldn't turn off the tap from its end because it needed that energy to keep coming through the pipeline. How uh, realistic is it to, to get those storage sites um, up to a high level so that we don't have that kind of crunch that you were talking about next winter? So it's true that Russian uh, gas flows uh, throughout the last winter were below the long-term average, uh, whether that was because they had production problems themselves or because they were 
planning for this conflict already is, is hard to say. Uh, now, refilling these um, gas inventories now that we're out of winter and ahead of next winter will be uh, not easy. It's possible, but it won't be easy. And then, you know, the German government has just uh, introduced a new law that you have to fill them uh, virtually to 100% by next winter. This will mean um, the Europeans either have to import as much LNG as they can get their fingers on, which they will try, and that will be really expensive. Um, and which is, of course, is a bit awkward because that drives inflation up and the cost of living crisis is related to that. Uh, it also requires the um, LNG industry to, to operate without faults throughout this year. So you can't have any hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. The Australian industry needs to work West Africa. And I mean, I've, I've covered natural gas markets for a while now, and I can't remember a year that um, happened without any fault. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, Europe could, of course, try and uh, import as much Russian uh, gas as it can this summer, but that's politically really awkward. So um, this means, actually, that um, a really important aspect for European politicians and energy companies will be to structurally reduce demand, uh, to, uh, to rip out all the gas boilers that you can out of households and oil heaters and replace them with water pumps and whatever else. Um, that is a, a really important aspect of this um, preparation decoupling from Russia that doesn't actually get talked very much in the public about at the moment. And I, I think governments should actually uh, address this. Interesting. So is this one of these ones where, where consumers, your, your, you know, your ordinary person, if you like, can make a difference by, by making that transition? Or would it have to be on a massive scale to really make any difference? Yes. Uh, so um, consumers can make a real difference here. You can uh, turn down your thermostat by two degrees. Uh, you can uh, wear a pullover at home. You can drive a bit more slowly on on car on roads um, and uh, try and car share a little bit more. So there's really big ways where every person can actually collectively do something and it has a really big impact. And we actually saw this in, uh, in the early 1970s during the oil shock. Uh, the US did that uh, really heavily and also in parts of Western Europe. And it, it really works. And I, we think um, at Eurasia Group, this is, this is something European governments should do now. They should communicate to, uh, to the people, to the public, to try and reduce consumption of uh, energy at home, heating, driving a bit less, driving more slowly, uh, to, to reduce consumption. Because we think the public would be open to this and there's support for this sort of policy. And it saves people money because we've got this cost of living crisis and um, high inflation, which is driven mostly by energy um, costs. Uh, and also, if you don't do this now and delay the problem uh, politically because you don't want to because of elections or whatnot, um, then you might have to, as a government, introduce real energy rash rationing next winter. And then you can, you know, might have to tell people you can only heat for three day, uh, hours a day uh, while it's really cold. And that is something that would be very unpopular. Um, so uh, we're a little bit surprised that the governments in Europe haven't actually engaged with the public more yet. But, but I actually suspect it might happen quite soon. Henning, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, and thank you very much. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to click follow wherever you're currently listening to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. This week's episode was produced by Lucy Hoff, with thanks to Noah Zan and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.